This is the APS China Quarterly, October 2020. Breaking up with China is hard to do, by Jason Yap, Chai Haoxiang, and Tan Konyam. The U.S. launched its trade war against China with much fanfare in 2018 in the form of higher tariffs, by making made-in-China goods more expensive to U.S. importers. U.S. President Donald Trump was aiming to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. He was also aiming to shrink his country's trade deficit with China. Two years on, amid a global recession caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, China is still the world's factory. Total exports outnumbered imports by a few hundred billion U.S. dollars. The majority of China's trade surplus is still due to the U.S. buying more goods from China than it sells. For the first eight months of 2020, China's exports to the U.S., its largest trading partner, were down 3.6 percent year-on-year in USD terms, but in CNY terms, exports were down just 0.5 percent. While China exported less in USD terms to major trading partners like Hong Kong, down 8.5 percent; Japan, down 2.7 percent; and Korea, down 3.1 percent, it made more goods for other parts of the world like Germany, up 3.9 percent; Vietnam, up 8.9 percent; Thailand, up 11.9 percent; Singapore, up 8.9 percent; and Australia, up 7.5 percent. Trade statistics are worth paying attention to. Unlike GDP statistics, they are less easily fabricated due to the ease of cross-checking export and import data between countries. It seems that the world continues to hunger for made-in-China goods, especially smartphones, computers, and integrated circuits. What is really happening? Faced with higher tariffs, some China manufacturers may have simply redirected goods like. Phone parts, furniture, and automatic data process machines to the U.S. through Vietnam, a Nomura analysis in 2019 found. According to another Goldman Sachs study in 2020, China exporters may also have simply found new buyers for commodity-type goods like iron and steel structures and refined oil. Comparing Q4 2017, before the trade war began, with Q4 2019. Goldman Sachs noted that China exported billions of dollars more of memory chips, processors, and controllers, switching and routing apparatuses, and other integrated circuits to non-U.S. countries. These increased trade flows more than made up for lower exports of cell phones and printed circuit assemblies across the two time periods. Given that chips and processors are inputs in electronic devices. The report noted that Chinese exporters may be moving up the supply chain, with lower-value assembly work done elsewhere. On the surface, China is still scoring some trade war victories. Designed in California, challenged in Wisconsin, taken over in Jiangsu. The electronics supply chain is one place to examine China's competitiveness amid a trade war. Within it. Smartphone giant Apple has attempted to diversify its China-centric supply chain with limited success. One reason is that manufacturing in the U.S. is simply too expensive. 
In 2018, Apple's biggest supplier, Foxconn, committed USD $10 billion to set up a plant in Wisconsin, meant to produce flat-screen TVs and LCD panels. As part of the agreement with the Wisconsin state government, Foxconn could receive subsidies totaling as high as USD $4.8 billion upon completing milestones such as local employment and productivity targets. By January 2019, Foxconn was reconsidering its initial plans, citing high labor costs, among others. In April 2020, Foxconn finally announced a production ramp-up in Wisconsin plant, but to produce medical ventilators. Meanwhile, Chinese companies are financially capable of maintaining their dominance in the supply chain. They can either expand into alternative countries or take over rival units to do so. China's homegrown Apple component supplier, Luxshare, is hiring thousands of workers in Vietnam this year to make Apple's wireless earphones, known as AirPods. Luxshare has also expanded through acquisitions, most recently buying two subsidiaries from Taiwanese iPhone assembler, Winstron, based in China's Jiangsu province for USD $472 million in July 2020. Another deal in August 2020 involved Lens Technology, a Chinese components supplier of Apple, which spent USD $1.43 billion to buy two indirect subsidiaries of Catcher Technology, a Taiwanese metal casings maker for the iPhone. 1.4 Billion Reasons to Stay China's sizable domestic population of 1.4 billion people also attracts multinational companies to maintain a presence there, especially for non-strategically sensitive industries such as automobiles. U.S. blue-chip General Motors, a quintessentially American company, has been going all out in China ever since setting up a joint venture with state-owned manufacturer SAIC in 1997. GM and its joint ventures in China hire more than 58,000 employees and sell millions of vehicles a year. GM's microelectric vehicle, the Hongguang Mini EV, was the most sold EV in China in August 2020. GM is understandably attracted to China, the world's biggest EV market. Emission standards are more stringent in China, and 5G network deployment, critical for EV development, is also more advanced there. EV maker Tesla also set up its Shanghai factory in 2019 amid tariffs imposed by China on American-made vehicles. Japanese auto giant Toyota categorically stated publicly that it had no plans to shift its manufacturing out of China, despite USD $2 billion worth of incentives offered by the Japanese government to encourage business to reshore to Japan. Toyota has no plans to change our strategy in China or Asia due to the current situation. The auto industry uses a lot of suppliers and operates a vast supply chain, and it would be impossible to just switch in an instant, the company told South China Morning Post in May 2020. Match made in India? However, as the U.S. digs in for a long fight with China across economic, political, and other fronts, the battle lines are being drawn. Multinational companies have been thinking about setting up two separate supply chains, one to serve the Chinese market, 
and one to serve everyone else. With also an estimated 1.4 billion people, India has been touted as a possible competitor to China on the supply chain front in a way that smaller countries like Vietnam fall short. Apple made news in July 2020 for assembling its flagship iPhone 11 at the Foxconn plant near Chennai, India. This was the first time a top-end phone model was manufactured in the country. Producing in India allows Apple to save on import duties of some 20% on some products. It is also part of a larger plan to shift about 15-30% to of Apple's current production out of China. India is eager to attract companies to shift over. It offered USD $6.6 billion worth of incentives in June 2020 for smartphone manufacturers to set up shop there. Apple's Taiwanese suppliers Foxconn, Winston, and Pegatron have applied for funds for the scheme, along with South Korean electronics giant Samsung, India's technology minister said in August 2020. It is still early days, however. Apple's assembly operations in India remain heavily dependent on components imported from China and Taiwan. At just a few percentage points of the market, Apple's limited smartphone market share in India also might not create many incentives for Apple's supply chain partners to expand there. Ironically, more than half of the Indian smartphone market is currently dominated by low- and mid-tier Chinese handset makers Xiaomi, Oppo, and Vivo. A lack of infrastructure is another reason why it will take some time for India to replace China's role in global supply chains. China has succeeded in becoming the factory of the world partly because its government spent hundreds of billions of dollars to build airports, seaports, roads, and power stations. Assuming India has the political will, capital, and tenacity to do the same, it will still take at least 10 years to build up its essential infrastructure. In the meantime, China will get to keep the title of being, quote, the factory of the world. Reluctant Goodbyes So far, we have only cited trade data and some anecdotal examples. A deeper analysis of whether the world will continue to depend on China will require an understanding how geopolitical alliances are falling in place. Another framework to think of the issue can be about whether China's entrenched advantages are sustainable. Its hardworking and skilled workforce, its infrastructure and supply chain network, and its large domestic market. In the next few years, these advantages might still hold. China's population remains hungry for a better life. Its infrastructure is newer than that of the West. Numerous suppliers are already based there, creating a network effect that manufacturers can tap on. Domestic demand can only grow with increasing affluence. By the end of this decade, the Chinese market will become by far the largest market in the world. In some cases, as seen in the smartphone industry, the companies diversifying their supply chain from China are the Chinese themselves. They would not want their host countries to beat them at their own game. In other areas like auto and industrial machinery, growing Chinese demand will still necessitate companies to continue to stay in China. However, as the popular phrase goes, Demography is destiny. 
China's hitherto cheap workers will progress up the economic ladder, especially reducing the importance of labor-intensive industries. In fact, Chinese workers have been thumbing their noses at low-end jobs in the past decade. The average salary of a Chinese factory worker is already at USD 800 to 1,000 a month, compared to USD 200 to 400 in India or Vietnam. At the same time, China's birth rate has declined sharply from over 20 million newborns a year in 1994 to about 16 million newborns a year from 2003. As this generation reaches adulthood in the next five to ten years, along with significant expectations for higher education, the numbers of those willing to work in a factory should continue to fall. In low-value-add industries like textiles, the shift out of China for basic cutting and sewing work to parts of Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and East Africa has been well underway. Within the smartphone manufacturing space, suppliers also seem to be moving some assembly operations out. In the medium term, economic, not just political factors, might dictate the shifting of supply chains outside of China. For now, Sino-U.S. conflicts are limited to high-value-add areas where China is deemed to have an edge, such as 5G, artificial intelligence. Quantum computing or social media. China's quote "Made in China 2025" plan encourages manufacturers to focus on tech-related industries like aerospace, robotics, semiconductors, and biotech. It is not clear if further conflicts will develop around industries like biotech or robotics. Either way, China will continue to supply the world in the short term. If not the U.S., then Europe, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. There are business opportunities yet. Jason Yap joined APS Asset Management in February 2020 as a senior forensic analyst with 10 years of experience. He previously worked at Asia-based forensic accounting firms. Barelli Walsh Limited and Entan Corporate Advisory. He has a Bachelor of Business Management with a finance major cum laude from Singapore Management University. He is also a CFA charter holder from the Chartered Financial Analyst Institute. Tsai Haoxiang joined APS Asset Management in February 2020 as Vice President Investments. He previously worked at Credit Suisse AG and Singapore Press Holdings. He graduated summa cum laude from Dartmouth College in 2009 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He is a CFA charter holder. Professor Tan Kongyam is a founding member and deputy chairman China of APS Asset Management. He is also professor of economics at the Nanyang Technological University. He serves as a board member at the Changi Airport Group from 2015 to present. From 1985 to 1988, he was the chief assistant to Dr. Goh Keng Sui, the late Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore, who was invited by Mr. Deng Xiaoping to advise China on economic development strategy. From June 2002 to June 2005. He was a senior economist at the World Bank office in Beijing.
In 2004, he was a member of the World Bank Expert Group on the 11th Five-Year Plan from 2006 to 2010 for the State Council in China. He served as the Chief Economist of the Singapore Government from 1999 to 2002.